This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm trying not to yell because I realize that sometimes the introductions of these shows are at pretty high energy and I come in pretty hot. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, kind of ease my way into your ear holes. Hopefully that will be uh, a little less dramatic because I know sometimes uh, full full confession here. I listen to my own podcast occasionally and there are times where I'm just like, whoa, Ray, you got to calm down. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do. So hi, welcome. You are listening to this show because you care about independent music in some capacity, whether you're going to shows currently, whether you're playing in a band, whether you're just uh, living life and loving music, and that's perfect. All of those things are required for you to listen to this show. I mean, I'm not going to kick you out if you... Well, I would just be curious about how why you'd even be listening to this if you don't care about music that much. I, I just don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe you just just like the my dulcet tones. Who knows? But the guest... Mm, Pardon me. Oh, excuse me. The guest this week is Josh Brigham. He is the guitarist and one of the founding members for a, uh, I would define legendary, hardcore, metalcore, whatever you'd like to, core, heavy, heavy melodic hardcore band, Hopes Fall, who have uh, recently announced their reunion. Well, not reunion. I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess reunion. So they're recording a new record and they're re-releasing all of their old stuff on vinyl and, uh, you know, to much ado and excitement. Um, I personally was very excited about it. Hopes Fall, my old band got to play some shows with, which we go over at the beginning of the, our, our discussion, trying to place the other bands on the bill, which is always a fun task when you're like, oh man, we played that show at that city. Who else played that show? I can't remember. And then, you know, between two people, you're usually able to uh, land at a conclusion. So that's what we do. But uh, Josh was such a pleasant conversation, but let's get some, uh, some business pleasantries, uh, personal updates out of the way. And then we will uh, dive into this conversation that you came to uh, tune into. So yeah, I've been doing some fun stuff recently in regards to, uh, hanging out with my son and, uh, you know, participating in some activities that, uh, I've never participated in before, uh, such as uh, Disney on ice. Uh, I've never done that before. And that was really, really fun. Um, it, I don't know whether or not it's viewing something through your child's eyes that makes you be like, Oh wow. Like the world is pretty full of wonder and pretty incredible, but I'd never been, and um, it was just a great production. Like you could tell that the people uh, that were, you know, performers and dressed up in uh, as a Buzz and Woody from Toy Story, like you know, they got a lot of stuff going on. They have to ice skate, they have to wear costumes, and uh, yeah, I was I was just impressed. And then the second thing that I did, which uh, this you know may sound kind of uh, lowbrow, white trash, whatever you want to call it, uh, no judgments there. But uh, Monster Jam, which is basically a bunch of monster trucks driving around and racing and, uh, you know, crashing and doing big air. Um, there is something that is just absolutely undeniable about the appeal of large machinery driving around and then potentially crashing. Um, it was just uh, it was so much fun. And it was a, an experience that, uh, yeah, I'll frankly never forget. And I encourage you, like, even if you may look at that and be like, Oh yeah, so you're gonna go to the uh, the tractor pull next, Ray? No, that that doesn't sound overly appealing. But uh, yeah, not only to watch my little dude just freak out at how huge these cars were and how crazy it was when they got in accidents, um, but uh, yeah, it was just uh, man, it was a lot of fun. So, anyways, there's some uh, there's some fun observations for those of you that are interested in the uh, toddler life. <laughs> 
or even if you're not, I mean, I guess technically it would be kind of weird for a, you know, person that is, uh, you know, childless, just randomly buying one ticket to go see Disney on ice. Like, you know, that might be a little, a little, little strange for you to do, you know, I mean, go see a movie by yourself. I go see movies by myself all the time, but, um, yeah, Disney on ice might, uh, might, you might want to go with family. Okay. <laughs> I'm just putting it that way. Um, yeah, like I said, Josh was, uh, the original founder of Hope's Fall and play guitar did a lot of songwriting and um yeah we just got to go all over the place in this conversation which i always enjoy um this one i only jotted down a few notes before our conversation um and sometimes that works well for me other times that doesn't work well and uh, i mean i'm i'm able to cover it up with my supreme talent <laughs> But there are times where I feel like, oh, man, oh, I, I ran through all of my uh, topics of discussion already. So, you know, maybe this will go into some new and exciting uh, area that I haven't gone into. But, uh, yeah, Josh and I definitely went there. So anyway, so they have, uh, like I said, a new record that's going to be forthcoming on a imprint of Equal Vision Records, which I'm totally blanking on the name of right now. But, uh, yeah, watch for it. And, um, yeah, you should like Hope's Fall because they are a great band and they did um, pretty incredible things as far as I'm concerned. So, here is Josh, and I will talk to you, uh, you know, a couple times. Well, actually, you'll hear me in like 10 seconds, right? So maybe, but I'll, I'll formally walk you out of the end. That's up taking you back to the uh, you know early 2000s and um, at that time I worked at an independent record store uh, here in Southern California and um, I also played we actually I'm, if I'm not mistaken we actually my old band and your band played together uh, a couple once or twice in Canada we uh, my old band I sang for a band called Taken we were definitely in the same ilk oh yeah yeah so I think we played once in Montreal and Quebec together with Code 7 if I'm not mistaken and this day forward Yes, and this day forward, and I think love lost but not forgotten. I think that sounds. I don't yep. know if that sounds familiar. Yep, but that is that is true. That is absolutely true because Grady, one of those guys, became our sound guy for a, a long time. That's right, Grady. He played bass in that band, right? Correct. Yes. Wow. There. I don't know. Shaking so many memories loose. But anyways, the uh, so any anytime a band that kind of you know did something similar to what we were doing came around, I was always so excited because even though melodic hardcore you know existed obviously prior to our bands existing there was always that you know weird sort of kinship you felt with a band that you know wasn't just mosh riff after mosh riff you know um oh, oh yeah it's like you know, we're riding the same wave here right totally um yeah and so anyways but the you know once the knowings to speak of ep came out it was one of those things where it just really um you know i, I know a lot of people here in southern california gravitated towards it um did you like? I, I guess how quickly did you feel people kind of paying attention to that EP and what you guys were uh, doing from that perspective? It was like when I, I remember back to when we we put that thing out, and um, it was like right at the dawn of the internet and music. You know, like when you could just start finding stuff, and I think it was like MP3 dot com or something, and like. Uh, end of an era got like a hundred thousand plays on it or something. We were like, what? Like, that's like, where's, what, do, what even is this thing? MP3.com, you know? And like, um, and I think that when, when we started seeing the response on that, we were like, well, this is really cool. And, um, 
also, you know, the shows at that point started to get a little bigger and stuff like that. So I guess it really was right around that time and the early Furnace Fest that, uh, that we were trying to release that, that CD around. Um, there was definitely a buzz there. And I think that started to be, that's when it really started to become a thing where we were like, well, this is actually, this is actually something now, you know? Right. So I think that was 2001. It would have been like summer of 2001. I believe. Right, right. No, I, I think, yeah, I think you're, yeah. Totally, you're totally correct. And it's funny, I, I always love when you can specifically remember the markers of, you know, a bygone era where it's like, yeah, you're looking at the charts, you know, the, the quote-unquote charts on mp3.com because, I mean, I totally remember that being such a, a pivotal site for so many bands to be like, wait a minute, what do you mean 30,000 people listen to this song? That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that was just like revolutionary. Totally. You know? Just the idea that it was so accessible, A, and then B, that people were responding to it in large numbers right. was, uh, you know, validating. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, you kind of have, uh, it was funny because, you know, I've definitely heard many anecdotal stories of people not too dissimilar to like how families used to listen to radio in the 1920s and 30s where people would, you know, find an MP3 and then obviously be able to like listen to it with their friends like around a computer that had a fast internet connection and it was like, you know, you had like right. you had like two or three friends listening to a song through crappy computer speakers being like this is amazing. Yeah, this is great, dude. Play it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. That's- that's uh, awesome. Yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of focusing on you, were you uh, born and raised in North Carolina or where did you come up? I was raised in North Carolina. I was born in Ottawa, Canada. My parents worked there. My father worked for the U.S. Embassy up there. Oh, and uh, that's moved down here when I was four. He was in the immigration service. And so we moved down here when I was four. And uh, so, I mean, I consider myself a native of North Carolina. I mean, all my formative years were here. Right. Um, I grew up in Charlotte. My parents still live in the same house they did back then. And, you know, I live maybe like four miles away from them or something. Right. And did you, uh, so, so, so do you have dual citizenship? Do you have a, a Canadian uh, citizenship as well? You know, it was, interestingly enough, no, because if you're an American citizen born abroad, like on a base or something like that, Oh. Uh, I guess you, you don't have it. You're just an American citizen. Right, right. Even yeah. though it's like, there's a lot of loopholes. Like if you were to, say, play international soccer really well, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> so like you'd be born in Germany, but play for the American team or vice versa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, okay, you are, you're worth claiming as a citizen. <laughs> right. But I'm not worth nearly enough. <laughs> no. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, and so been, and what, yeah. what was your uh, what was your family structure like? You know, brothers and sisters. Are you an only child? Right, no, no. Uh, I have a sister who's four years younger than me, and uh, you know, my mom and dad are still together. Uh, um, but yeah, just a, a typical, I guess, like suburban, you know, family in right. the south. Sure, sure. Um, and so the, uh, you know, as you started to matriculate through school and start to develop, you know, some of your own identity, um, you know, did you, obviously because Hope's Fall started off as a Christian band did, uh, were there, I mean, it's inescapable to have Christian influence in the South. Like there's no, <laughs> it's got a part and parcel. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. you know, did you, your family go to church and like you, cause Hope's Fall essentially started kind of like in a youth group scene. At a church. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, actually. So, I mean, 
I guess you could trace like the roots of it back to like the fourth grade, honestly. Um, but, uh, when, um, I met Ryan Parrish, uh, he and I, um, we were in like Sunday school together and we were like the dweeby kids, you know, that were getting picked on and whatnot. And we would just draw and hang out with each other. And, and, uh, and so, and then we became buddies. And I remember like going to like, you know, youth group functions growing up, like when we would go like out of town, you know, for to the beach or to the mountains or something, it'd just basically be like me and him. And we would listen to music on the bus together the whole time. Like we would, get a CD, you know, like a, a discman and then one of those splitters with two little, um, you, you know, like headphone outs. And we would just, we'd bring a giant book of CDs and just listen to music the entire time, just sitting next to each other while everybody else is playing around and, you know, doing this or that or the other. But we would just sit there and listen to the toadies and the pumpkins and hum and dinosaur junior and the pixies and all that. And, you know, started kind of forming, you know, I feel like clothing and music are two of the first things that you start to choose for yourself as you start to become, I don't know, sentient for lack of a better word, when you start to right, you know, like you become aware of your own identity. Like it's not just like, Oh, sports are on TV. I like sports. You, you know, you start actually making choices and stuff. I, I, it's different ages for everybody, right? Um, yeah, definitely. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It just kind of is. And I feel like, so that fourth grade, you know, like nine, ten years old, started kind of, you know, getting this identity, you know, that was like a little different than what I, what I was around or what I was expected. But then finding another group of people that were going through that same kind of metamorphosis. And uh, so you could trace it all the way back to then. Right. I think, you know, like when we first met. Sure. Sure. And did you, um, you know, because, uh, all those bands you're mentioning are obviously, you know, they were, you know, even at the time, obviously below the radar where it was like, you know, yeah, they would get occasional airplay on MTV on like 120 minutes or whatever, but you know, you had to do more research on that stuff. So how, uh, you know, like, did you have a good radio station in town? Like how was that stuff kind of getting into your head? Um, you know, again, it was me, for me, it was through my friends. Uh, really, they were the ones that were being exposed to it. And, uh, and so then they would pass the music along to me and, um, you know, and I would listen to, listen to it, you know, kind of, you know, on the DL cause it wasn't, you know, it wasn't good Christian wholesome music and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, that's what really started to, I don't know, kind of shape me and, and for me. And I think 120 minutes was huge. I can remember specifically, me and Ryan and another one of our friends, Andrew, were at the beach with like Andrew's parents. They brought us down like over the summer for the week and 120 minutes came on. And I can remember, uh, not a surf's popular. And then like Weezer's one, some Weezer song. It might've been sweater song, but they came on like back to back on that show. We were just like, what is this? You know, like we'd heard Weezer before, but not, not a surf. And then that was, you know, mind blowing. So I think, you know, for me, I wasn't like going to shows at a really young age. I didn't have like an older brother or anything like that. That was kind of like shepherding me through and showing me like seven inches and EPs. It was like my buddies through youth group that were allowed to be exposed to that kind of stuff were, were showing it to me. 
Nice, nice. That's how I kind of found it, yeah. That's cool, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, since you are the oldest of the family, as far as siblings are concerned, you know, usually some people may have the luxury of their older brother or sister kind of showing them the ropes, but you were uh, having to rely on your friends and everything. Exactly. Exactly. Unfortunately, they had good taste. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. but I, <laughs> I also like it too, where you know you're listening to this music devoid of context, where it's like you know you're not as precious as you are when you get older in regards to like something being cool or not a part of the scene or you know whatever adjective you want to use to describe it. So I love when you may unapologetically like you know uh toad the wet sprocket and you're like dude this is so good and then it's only until friends of yours are like yo that's kind of whack and you're like but i but i like it (laughs) it's yeah it's so fun to kind of figure out what uh you know what is socially acceptable to like and obviously what is like oh no this maybe this is just my own personal taste and it's so funny that like that is such a thing like that is such a part of like teenage politics it's just like liking the right music or being a part of that. I can remember like massive divides between like groups of friends in high school or groups of acquaintances where it was like, well, these kids wear Marilyn Manson t-shirts and you know, like, well, these kids wear like hardcore band t-shirts and stuff like that. And there was like these definite like lines drawn. It was like, this music is cool. No, this music is cool. And this is how we're going to identify And this is how we're going to find our friends. You know, it's like, so odd, you know, and so completely immature. I remember like, you know, getting my first girlfriend and, and thinking like, Oh, well, we like the same movies and we like the same music and we dress alike. I mean, we're perfect for each other. <laughs> like, no, you know, totally. no values, you know, no you know, life perspective or anything like that. You know, it was just, Oh, completely horrible. <laughs> right. You're like, but it's, you're at the like, same time, so much fun to remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, nostal- yeah. nostalgia is a powerful thing. And then, but yeah, you're just, you're young and you're figuring it out. Um, and so, you know, like, like you mentioned, obviously, since, uh, you know, religion played a huge part in, you know, the music that you were listening to as far as like what you obviously could take home and the parents wouldn't turn a, uh, you know, turn an eyebrow at, um, so, you know, how in your head, how were you obviously kind of justifying it in regards to, hey, like this is OK music to listen to, even though it may be, you know, antithetical to what I'm experiencing in Sunday school? You know, it's funny. Uh, it's it, it, it's still it's still divisive even to this day uh, in, in my family. Um, and it's just it it's hard to it's hard to quantify to myself, like how much of my own personality is still wrapped up in like this teenage rebellion, you know, and just stepping out from what is expected of you, what was considered normal, what was considered safe, what was considered right or righteous or holy. And, um, having that idea challenge and just being like, well, this stuff resonates with me and it, doesn't resonate with what I'm being taught. And that caused a lot of conflict within me. Um, you know, that, that, that still leaves a residue today as an adult. It's a, it's an odd thing. Um, you know, uh, how your personality forms and the, the choices that you make and what you're exposed to at what ages, um, kind of just rambling at this point, but, uh, no, I, I, I don't know. I, so, you know, I haven't, I haven't finished forming all of my thoughts about it. Honestly, it's kind of an ongoing thing. I try to look back at myself objectively without 
judgment, you know, over the course of my life and just like think like, where, where did these thoughts come from? How did you start thinking and feeling this way? Um, spent a lot of time reflecting on that. Uh, but, um, that, that divide, that, that fracture between family and religion and, and, and music, uh, massive, mm-hmm. just absolutely massively shaped who I am. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting because you do. I think people that experience uh, independent music through the context of having some sort of Christian overtones, um, just because I mean, frankly, it was just such a big business in the late '90s, early 2000s, where it, I just so distinctly remember like going into a Christian bookstore and buying, you know, a Training for Utopia or Focal Point CD and being like, yeah, why is why is this twenty dollars? Like, I'm like, I, I feel like this should not cost this much. And then, you know, you could go to your local independent record store and buy it for like fifteen. And like you just start to see those little inconsistencies of like, wait, maybe this isn't on the, you know, up and up, um, even though message wise, it's totally spot on and what I personally believe in or whatever. But then you start to obviously explore other options like you're talking about. And then you either become comfortable with the notion of like, oh, yeah, I like, you know, Christian slash faith based bands, but I also like stuff that you know, is not that as well. Yeah, yeah, and it was so interesting, but I definitely would like use the faith based music to justify the other music be like oh this is a christian band i can listen to this too you know and like um it's just so interesting but yeah, touching on the uh the the marketing of that the way you're you can charge a premium for selling a belief i just find completely abhorrent uh and you can look at that one of two ways you'd be like oh well that's just you know it's a, a premium you pay to have a, a curated you know system that will provide things that fit into my belief patterns that I've chosen for myself or, or, or not. And I, again, I'm rambling here. I lose my, I lose my point sometimes, but, um, it's okay. Yeah. It's still, yeah, that, 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 that still strikes a nerve with me. Yeah. Very much. No, I, t- I, 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 I totally agree too, especially just because once you start to get a wider worldview and, you know, like obviously hopes falls, transition from a band that obviously just kind of exclusively played you know churches christian shows to obviously playing shows that aren't you know the farthest removed from that um you start to see that you can live comfortably in both worlds and not i guess sacrifice what it is that you may believe in you know like there people can exist in both worlds yes you you can you, yes, you can. I guess um, it's. Uh, it's, it's, it's it sounds like there's. Back to, yeah, it sounds like there's some hesitation there, Josh. Please, please expand. <laughs> you know, you were know, talking about like, hey, let's talk about something that like makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. Like, we could spend an entire episode going right. down this rabbit hole, uh, that path. You know, like I, that that that's something I could go on and on and on about, and it would get really boring and. Um, yeah, so I don't know that one. Let's just move on from that one. No, that's to- totally, totally fine. Because yeah, it is. It is a. Um, I wouldn't even say a hot button issue, but it's just one of those things where um, you know I think bands that exist now that come up uh, within independent music, 
don't um even though it still exists in regards to um i so distinctly remember uh like the band i played in was not you know we never labor all to serve christian like we never made any sort of overt um you know promises in regards to that even though i myself was and the rest of the guys weren't i just remember having that experience of someone coming up to me at the merch table and saying hey are you guys a christian band and i was kind of like uh like i am but like no one else is and they were like okay i'm not gonna buy your cd um so i yeah even though i still think that exists I don't think it is as prevalent as what it once was, like, especially, you know, because Tooth and Nail is smaller than it used to be. And like all of these labels that were powerhouses back then aren't as uh, prevalent as they are now. Um, well, but- yeah. And also they had, the, they had like, they were the ones controlling the information stream and they were controlling the media. You Like the, the, the art getting out there, you know, had to, you know, the way the system was set up with the, the records, you, you had to go through that. Yep. Um, to get music, and now it's just the internet. It's just like, well, you can just you can make it yourself and upload it yourself, and it doesn't matter, right? You know? Yeah, no, for so sure. So it's totally taken that aspect out of it, I think. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm not nearly as active in, in searching out music and finding things as I used to be. Now it's just like uh, go on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, oh, com- <laughs> buddy. Completely fair. You know. Uh, yeah. So, uh, something else I found so uh, intriguing about Hope's Fall at large was the um, you guys had such a strong aesthetic, like intentionally or unintentionally, um, you know, not not so much with, you know, frailty of words, but, you know, once uh, the, you know, No Wings to Speak Of came out mm-hmm. and then obviously working with your uh, he was a friend of yours at Chandler Owen, right? The designer. Oh yeah, he lives down the street from me. So yeah, we yes. still hang out. <laughs> but like, I, I I think to me that's I think a lot of people r- really responded to the fact that there was a specific aesthetic behind the band. Um, do, was that kind of intentional? Really stepping out on that EP and kind of being like, all right, here's our logo. We're definitely going to use it across all of our T-shirts. That sort of stuff. It, it was try- us trying to get this. I don't even think we had an idea of what the message was. We just knew we wanted it to look cool and, and be cool and feel cool. And that's a really cheesy way of putting it. Um, but our buddy Chandler was, he, you know, he was kind of like us. He was a truth seeker and, and, and an artist. And, um, you know, he, he got it and he came up with us. He was part of the same youth group. And um, we just always wanted to use him to source the like imagery because you know just it felt right and that will continue even today like he he's going to be doing all the the new artwork and everything that's still what he does he's a graphic artist like in, in several different formats right no that's cool i just yeah. i think people especially just because it, you know even though the band was you know having some sort of audience uh, so many bands of that uh time frame you didn't you had no idea what you were really doing you were just kind of like you know putting it out there and then like to have even just like one step of confidence where it's like okay we're gonna make all of our stuff look similar um you know that was kind of a a really uh unique idea at that time it was it, yeah it was like one of those things like it just we, we weren't it felt good to do it like that and it felt good to have that kind of like you know i don't know sameness throughout that consistency um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess we, we, we can't, I can't take too much credit for it because it was just kind of a reaction. I was like, well, our buddy Chan does art and all this stuff is cool. So let's just, let, let's just let Chandler do it. So maybe I should give him more credit. 
Well, to, it, yeah, but I mean, not everyone has the luxury of obviously having a talented graphic designer either in the band or closely attached to the band. So, yeah, you you, you can yeah. you can give credit where credits to. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely. I, I'm going to give him credit for the visuals because we just we would just he you know he'd ask us themes like loss, uh, you know, and space, or you know, right transcendence, you know, stuff like that, and then he would run with it. Right, right. So, yeah. Uh, and so uh, once you once you guys obviously started to, you know, play shows and uh, get yourself out there beyond just like your local scene, do you have memories attached to when you felt like, you know, you show up at a show and there's like 100 people there and you don't know anybody and there's a few kids singing along up front? Like, when did that start to kind of occur for you guys? Was that after the EP or did you kind of notice the seeds of that being planted uh, during the frailty of words, full length stuff? The seeds of that were being planted during the frailty of words. And I might have the timing wrong on this. Um, but I think the, the first time that we really, the first tour we went on was five days long. And dude, we were the Kings of the world at this point. Okay. It was like, we played a show in Winston Salem. Then we drove to Nashville then Memphis. Then we played one in Birmingham. And then we played in, um, in, in, in like St. Pete, Florida. And it was five days. And it was, we were just like, Oh, this is amazing. We're on the, we're on tour. We are, we're doing it, you know? And I just remember thinking back to that period, that specific period and being like, Oh, this is, this is a game changer. Like, this is it. Like we're getting out there. We got to keep doing this. Um, uh, but it was us and Spitfire and 18 visions. Oh yes, of course. It was like five shows, you know? And, and that was like, that was the big turning point for me. That's cool. You know? And were you, were you doing school at the time or, or like, did you have to make, did you have to make that decision to obviously drop out of school and kind of move forward with the band? No, I always knew that we were like, uh, I think back then Ryan and I were both, um, we moved, we went to different colleges our freshman year. Like I went to Montree college in North Carolina. He went to Elon and the band formed that freshman year and we would drive home on the weekends and play. And, uh, and then we just decided like, look, we should go back to UNCC and, and, you know, do it there. So I think, the, the whole first couple of years, like the frailty era and the, the, the knowings time, we were full-time students, you know, delivering pizza and, you know, playing shows on spring break and summer break and winter break. Like that was our big thing. Like we'd have a, a, a show every month or so. And then we'd try to do like a week in the winter, you know, try to do a few spring break shows and then do a week or two weeks in the summer, like kind of booking our own things and just, making contacts over the internet. I remember, you know, somehow we got hooked up with seven angels, seven plagues. And we were like, all right, let's go do something in the Midwest together this summer. And we went out for like 10 days, you know, and it was like all trading shows and booking it ourselves and, you know, stuff like that. But the the whole time I, I never had any illusions of like quitting college to go chase the band because in my mind, the band was just this really awesome thing and it was, you know, part of my life, part of my identity, but it wasn't a career. This wasn't going to be how I was going to support myself. Like I didn't think we were going to become rock stars. We were in a hardcore band, you know, back when hardcore 
kids didn't become rock stars. No, you know, absolutely. Well, especially at that time frame too. It's like the only bands that you really could point at for making a living out of it. It's like, yeah, you could obviously, you could look at the New York City bands, like, you know, Sick of It All, and the bands of the early 90s, but then you didn't really have a band beyond Hatebreed, and then, you know, later, Poison the Well. Other than that, there wasn't anything you could really be like, oh, yeah, we can totally do this. It's like, no, that's, we're yeah. not, I'm not going to quit this. Yeah, like, we could make, we could make enough money to, like, have a car and stuff like that. I was like, no, like, right. and it's so funny because, even though like I loved the band so much and the music was such a part of my identity and like just trying to get that out there. Like I was firmly rooted in the fact that it was like, when I get home from this tour, I've got to work 10 nights in a row to be able to cover my expenses, you know, like delivering pizza and stuff. So it was just, there was no disillusionment like, Oh my God, I'm a rock star. I was like, no, this is a hell of a lot of fun and what a great experience. And, being able to go out and see the world on your own without any supervision and get to play shows and meet people. But it was like, yeah, real life is waiting for me when I get back home and I've got to get through 15 hours this semester at school and pay for it. Right. Totally. What were you studying? Me? Oh, I, um, that history. Okay. So you were going to be, yeah. you're going to be a teacher. <laughs> No, I had zero interest in being a teacher. I was just so appalled at the fact because, you know, I went to public school growing up. Like, I had to pay for school. This is awful. Well, if I have to pay for school, I'm only taking courses I enjoy. And I enjoyed history. (laughs) That was, uh, again, faulty logic of youth there. But, um, you know, I loved college. That was the other thing. Like, I was excited to go to class, you know, and learn. You know, the world has been a crazy place, and they just tell me about all this stuff that's happened. I'm like, no way. People are crazy. This is amazing. Like, that was my kind of attitude towards it. And I wanted to get in discussions with the professors, and I always sat up front and, you know. That's amazing. I loved it. Right. Yeah, I wish I could go back to school. I don't know why I was in such a hurry to leave. (laughs) I mean, it was expensive, but, you know. Right. But yeah, you're enthusiastic. Yeah. yeah, you're enthusiastic about learning, and especially uh, from the way that you viewed it, where I'm going to take classes that I actually enjoy, as opposed to you know people are just taking college yeah. just to you know buy time or whatever. So that's cool. Yeah, people were were so much more like I don't know, like, and maybe it's just like I'm a late bloomer on on so many fronts that like it just did not occur to my 18, 19 year old self that I was like you need to make a career choice right now. It's like, I knew I wasn't going to be able to play music for, or at least I, I thought I wasn't going to be able to play music for a living, you know? And, and I was just like, well, man, like just get a degree. You just, just get a degree and then you'll, it just, you'll figure it out, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was, my, that was my thought. And, um, yeah, man, I, I love, I like now it's interesting I didn't want to teach history back then. That was not my um, goal at all. But now I would love to, as a retirement job, uh, just like teach survey history courses at a community college or something, That's you know, true. and just tell, tell a really good story and just try to get people excited be like, listen to this crazy shit. You're not going to believe this. This stuff happened, you know? Um, I don't know. Like, I listened to Dan Carlin. Do you know who Dan Carlin is? Dan Carlin, a, pre- pod- a, a previous guest on this podcast. He's an old punk dude. 
Really? Dude, he, let, let me, uh, we'll, we'll divert for a second, but just because you and I share the same enthusiasm for this person. Yeah, he's, uh, I, I, I was, this is probably one of the most nervous times I've had on this podcast, but basically I just, you know, I wrote him because I heard him speak about, um, in other interviews, not on his own common sense or hardcore history, but other interviews he's done. And he's like, he mentioned once or twice, like, you know, growing up in the early eighties in LA and in the punk scene, like he's mentioned dead Kennedys. And I was like, okay, this dude seems to know what's up. And I wrote him and, um, yeah, I will send you the episode after we're done with our conversation, but it was just, it was, he, he was so amazing. And his perspective on, you know, punk and hardcore was just so, it was great. And he's like, frankly, he's like, that's all I listen to anymore. He's like, I don't seek out new bands. He's like, if I want to listen to music, he's like, I'm going to put on like, you know, circle jerks. And I'm like, dude, come on. But anyways, you, you love Dan Carlin just as much as I do. So we're, (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I, I, you know, just like if if I could do that and like, you know, find the one kid in a class that like was like me who, who like perked up and was like, what, tell me all about this. This is crazy. Like, where did we come from? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Tell me, tell, tell me know, more, like, tell me more about Attila the Hun. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but no, that's a, that's a, that's a great revelation. No, I, I like Dan Carlin even more now, uh, but like, <laughs> totally. He's, he's, he's the best. I feel you. Well, that's cool. Because that's it, I, badass. I, I just like, I just like that you obviously have, um, you know, a true passion for those things, uh, from, from that perspective, because, you know, sometimes people, that get attached to teaching don't even like teaching. And it's, uh, it's sad because they're obviously <laughs> very, they're very Bad influential. Teacher. Yeah. They're, and they're influential to the future generations. And it's like, Oh man, that's terrible. I'm excited to tell you that support for this podcast come from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. So if you're like me, when the weekend comes, you just don't want to sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, try new things, maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. It's also improved powertrain. It makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports because you know the last thing you want to do is for someone's device to run out of power. And my favorite feature is driver easy speak which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you it doesn't mean they'll listen but at least they can hear you so please navigate to your nearest toyota dealer or toyota.com and see whether there's always more to discover in the new 2017 highlander here's some legal stuff that you need to listen to as well drivers are responsible for their own safe driving always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely depending on the condition of the roads weather and vehicle the systems may not work as intended see the owner's manual for additional limitations and details the tss pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices phew moral of the story toyota highlander the real deal great car Check it out. I wanted I wanted to hit, to, uh, hit the subject of you know when you guys signed to Trustkill. Uh, obviously, Trustkill at that particular time was a you know a huge label at that point. Uh, basically, it was like Trustkill and Ferret. Those were like the coolest labels. And then obviously, you had your you know other labels that did great work during that time as well. But I remember it sending a lot of. Uh, I, I'm maybe overstating it, but like shockwaves in regards to, whoa, Hope's Fall signed to Trustkill. This is exciting. Um, and I know you guys were speaking to other labels at that time. Was it a real sort of agonizing decision to figure out what the next move for the band was from a business perspective? 
you know, it's so funny how little business perspective we had back then. <laughs> like we didn't make business decisions. You know, we were 22 years old and you know, it was really more of like an image decision. We were really trying to divorce ourselves from the Christian scene. Um, and me and Tom, I, I can't remember like what all made it on that, the wash up emo podcast, but, um, just talking about like the conscious decision to be like, we're moving away from this label because we're uncomfortable with it. Um, it doesn't represent who we are. This isn't why we got into a band. Like we didn't start a band to try to spread the good news. You know, it's like we started a band to play music and we took kind of the path of least resistance since we started a youth group. And so got to play a few cornerstone festivals and this and that. And so kind of, cheated a little bit, I guess, because we, we used that built-in infrastructure that I, you know, just previously blasphemed here. And, uh, and, and then it was like, no, we got to get out of that. And really that was the driving force of signing the trust kill for us. And it was also, I mean, having, you know, the other, the bands on the label 18 visions and poison the well and stuff like that. We were like, well, yeah, we're hitting our, our market and that'll be good for us. And, maybe we'll get exposure to different things that we wouldn't get to be a part of if we'd signed to a solid state or something like that. Sure. So and it, if we could have fast forwarded four years, it wouldn't have mattered, you know, right. like <laughs> totally you know, like August burns red and, and, and under oath and all those bands, enormous gene, like you can massive, massive scene wide successes, regardless of affiliation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it didn't matter. So we made it. We made a decision based on what we thought mattered, and turned out it didn't matter at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely hard to. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to apply the uh, the f- rear view mirror thinking on that, but you know, I, I get where you guys were coming from because you wanted to make a distinctive step into playing in front of people who you know might not have ever encountered a band that sounded like Hope's Fall, and I think that. Would, to me, that was, was exciting, yeah. especially, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to get kind of granular here with the uh, satellite years, but, you know, I was, I was, when that record came out, I was obsessed with it. It was just like, basically, it was everything that I loved about music from, oh, wow, it's like, you know, aggressive and hardcore and everything like that, but then, you know, basically sounding like Hum, and I loved Hum, and then when you guys decided to record with Matt Talbot, it was like, are you kidding me? Like, this could not be more of a match made in heaven. I couldn't wait for the record. Um but I just was so fixated on the fact that you got to record with Matt Talbot. And like prior to that, no independent band in our scene had really done that. Am I correct in that? Or you guys really? I, I think so. Yeah. It just um, it felt like a I mean, we, well, the, the way that that came about is because we were huge Shiner fans. And when Shiner put out the egg, I don't know if you remember like the liner notes. It's like these four silhouetted pictures and it's orange and black and white. Yep. And it just said, you know, like right in the back cover, like recorded with Matt Talbot at the Great Western uh, or Great Western Record Recorders, and we were just like, "Wait, what?" Like Matt Talbot has a studio. Shiner went there, and then um, you know we just picked up management at that point, and we were like, "Dude, this is a thing. Like, you have to go find this out for us. Like, we totally want to do this." And and then then it it happened and it came through, and so I remember before we were going to drive out to Illinois to go to the studio with him, like uh, Matt and I had a phone call and, and like, I just remember, you know, I just wanted him to think like, Oh, we're not just like hardcore kids. I was like, no, man, I like, I love failure and hum and the pumpkins. I'm like going down this list of bands, like 
seeking some sort of validation or, you know, like, right. no, we're not just some crappy hardcore band. <laughs> 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 so, totally. Well, you feel just like, whatever, man, like I'll see you when you get here. Just, uh, here's the address. Uh, see you in two days. <laughs> I, I love that because I, I totally understand where you're coming from because when you step into a world that doesn't understand the context in which you came from, you feel like you have to validate yourself in some way, shape, or form. Where it's like, no, I promise yeah. I, I, I promise we're not just like dumb kids. We do we do like good music, Mr Mr. Talbot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was so funny because he didn't know what to make of us when we first got there. You know, we were all like twenty one, twenty two and he's in his thirties, he's got a couple kids, you know, like he's you know, not over hum, but I mean, he's, he's, he's well past that point where he's like, all right, I'm, I'm teaching now. I've got this business that I'm running, you know, the, the, uh, the grandeur of being in a band was, was already dead to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't, at that point, <laughs> while we're still just like figuring it out. And, um, but it was, it was, it was a great experience, dude. Uh, it was so much fun to get to go there. And, and then, uh, also he was just super chill, super laid back and rad. And, you know, by the time we got to the end of it, like after the, the 15 days that he spent with us, I remember us listening back through the, the music in, in his studio. And he's like, you know, I see how you guys are big hum fans, but you did something with it that I didn't expect. And that was like the highest compliment we've ever been paid. Right. Matt Talbot was like, dude, I get it. I get it. Like, I get this. And then we like, and I remember when we left, like, he was like, what was the one band you were playing for that really, like that Led Zeppelin hardcore band? And we we're like, oh, like Coalesce? He's like, yeah. So we like made him Coalesce CDs so he could listen to that. And that was like the first time he'd heard it. I was just like, that's cool as shit. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love that. that. Yeah, that was probably like the single most validating musical experience ever and then it comes full circle like hum and failure played in charlotte last year or like two years ago we couldn't even believe it the the the, the only crux of it was the deftones were playing the same night and we're like you've got to be fucking kidding me like how is it like we have to choose between them you know right so of course we're gonna we went home and failure because i've seen the deftones 10 times and um but we ran into matt at the show and, and we like, we, you know, he, he, he was like, Oh guys, you know, and, and he bought us like a round of shots and, and, and we talked for a little bit and, and he was like, yeah, man, I still remember that. Like, that was a really great session. Like I, I still fondly remember that. And I was just like, wow, dude, that was 15 years ago. Like, thank right. you. Totally. That's you know, a- thank you for saying that. Yeah. That's, that's really, really special. And I, I love, did it you, it was cool. Did you have to, uh, did you already come into the studio with the idea that he was going to sing on on a song with you guys? Or was that just basically because you started to foster a relationship and you're like, okay, Matt, would you be interested in singing this part? So we, no, we didn't. We, I mean, you know, obviously the whole time when we're riding out there, like going to be like, you know, Hey, we're going to meet Matt Talbot and work with him. You know, we're like, maybe we'll get him to sing on the record. That would be so amazing. You know, we had, he had not promised us to do that or anything. But when we were um, when we were putting that song together, Escape Pod, um, we didn't really have like lyrics or anything, and, and Jay was just kind of like humming a melody along, and and Matt was like, "Oh, I got an idea for a melody," and 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 then Jay wrote those lyrics, and um, and 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 so that's how it, it, the the music part of it happened organically. But there was some conniving and manipulation uh, by us 
quite a lot of it actually. And so Chad, our bass player, um, spent most of his college career just playing video games. And, um, and so we challenged Matt because he was talking shit about how good he was at Goldeneye. And Chad was like, I'll fucking play you in Goldeneye. And, and basically like challenge him was like, if I beat you in Goldeneye, like best of seven, you got to sing a track on a record. And Matt was like, sure, whatever. Like, cause he was so confident he was going to destroy us and he got his ass kicked. Like Chad, Chad took him to school. <laughs> I love it. And so there was that, that happened too. <laughs> That's amazing. So basically so James maybe Gold- felt a little guilty after he got, after he got taken in Goldeneye. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the only reason that exists is because, uh, Nintendo 64's Goldeneye, uh, he got, he got demolished on that or not Nintendo 64. Was it, was that Nintendo 64 or Super Nintendo? Was it? I can't, I can't remember, dude. No, I just, cause I wasn't a very big gamer. Yeah. I, me personally. We would always play like FIFA in the van. Like right. that was uh, that was like the one thing that could kind of like bind us all together. That was the one game everybody could get together on. Right. So, but besides that, I just didn't really game. Yeah, that's fine. Um, and and th- this is more so for my own personal curiosity because I remember, um, you know, I mean, once that once that record came out and it sounded as good as it did, it was one of those things where I know a lot of bands that sounded similar to what you guys were doing were all interested in recording with Matt Talbot, but the record, uh, you know, he charged a pretty penny for you guys to record there, from what I uh, understand. Is that is that uh, correct, or was that just uh, uh, mythical proportions? I- I can't remember. I did. I can't honestly remember what the figure was. <laughs> no worries. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it was like ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was like five or six thousand dollars. I, I honestly don't remember. Right. I just I, I remember doing, yeah. doing some brief research into it, and it was like, oh, this is cost prohibitive for most bands. Uh, but yeah, it, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, after, I don't think he was unreasonable by any means. Right. Right. He was probably stable. You know, I don't think stable. he was like cashing in on his like. You know, hum fame. Right. You know, he was just uh, operating a studio. Yep. Like, I'm in the Midwest. Who yep. wants to record? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And so then as as uh, as Opsal obviously started to play out further, and, um, you know, you guys, it struck me that most of the touring that you guys did... Um, you were successful when you obvious when you did your headlining tours, uh, as far as people coming out and, you know, the crowds being receptive... But then the support bills you guys always existed on, I imagine, were really difficult to get not only people to pay attention to you guys, because, you know, if you're a band on a bill that is either playing with absurdly heavy bands or, you know, on the complete opposite of, like, just pop punk sort of stuff, you guys never um, fit into any of those categories. So was it a constant struggle trying to find bands to tour with that made sense? Um, yes and no. And, and the, the, the yes part was that there just weren't that many bands where we were like, Oh yeah. Besides like, Oh, the death towns are glass jaw, you know, we're like, well, that's a definite match. Um, we, we were kind of like, all right, well, we're going to go on tour with like hardcore bands. And then, then we're going to go on tour with like emo bands and pop punk bands and, and it, it was interesting because a lot of those decisions were made because we didn't know, you know, we didn't know how to build a band, you know, or how to build a cultivate a following. We were just kids and we were like, look, we want to go out and do the work and the label expects us to go out and tour. And these are the offers we have in front of us. And Hey, fuck it. Let's get out there. Um, and then after a while that did start to wear because it's like, 
you know, after you just keep missing the audience that you're playing in front of and like a thousand people are just bored <laughs> like every night, right? you know, you're just like, uh, what am I doing? Like, what is this? And, and so we started to get a little like disenfranchised with it. And I remember thinking like to myself, it's like, I want to crush it and make it sound good and know that I played hard, but I'm up here to do this for myself. And you know, fuck the audience, you know, sometimes was my attitude. Like I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm here for me. I'm here to experience this. I'm here to travel. And if you guys don't get it, Oh fucking well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, sometimes that attitude really proves itself to, uh, you know, kind of fuel a band where it's like, okay, we're out here to, you know, essentially be selfish and hopefully the sort of, uh, you know, either aggression or, uh, idea of pushing up against the crowd to be like, Hey, you either like us or you don't like us. That's fine. But we're going to do what we're going to do regardless. Yeah. I think that that was like one of the kind of galvanizing themes for us is that we were just going to do whatever we were going to do. Like, and, and, and that was, that was a big part of it. That was a big part of why we started writing music to begin with. It wasn't to like be a specific thing. It was to be our specific thing you know i, I said that all wrong but <laughs> I, I it was it was about it, it was about doing our thing and and being genuine to what we were attracted to and influenced by and inspired by and trying to push that somewhere um and that was always the goal that was and that's consistent through all the different member changes and over the years and stuff like that it's like that was kind of the the unifying thing that and you had to like hum Right. <laughs> totally. The pre <laughs> the prerequisite. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got to like hum and you've got to have nothing else to do with your life because this is what's happening now. We're going to go on tour for 10 months, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um and so the as you as you progressed through, you know, releasing A-types and Magnetic North, um the the people that supported Hope's Fall towards the beginning, you know, started to fall off because you guys didn't sound like what Hope's Fall should sound like or whatever. Um, you know, even though your own uh, creative vision was flourishing, you know, did you did you notice people pushing against the, the records as they came out? Not so much A-types, but I know Magnetic North is a kind of a polarizing Dude, record. But or, or, uh, there, I think... I think A-Types was more polarizing than Magnetic North, um, okay. or at least we felt it more because we, we followed up Satellite Years with something which was a complete, like, it was received as a 180, but I remember thinking, like, uh, dude, we write riffy music with all these dark melodies, and, you know, we have singing and screaming, like, what's the difference, really? Like, and we went for more song structure, we went for less linear structure. We were, we wanted to try to do something different that we had not done before. No wings and, and satellite years. We don't repeat a single part of a song. We don't have like a verse and a chorus. Well, that's not entirely true. There is, um, I guess like decoys had like a chorus, but it was just like, you know, we just pivoted cause we were like, all right, we're going to try to do something that we haven't done yet. And this is it. And we felt good about it. And it's funny, like, I'm the most nostalgic, I think, about that time period when A-Types came out, because that was when we started entertaining the ideas. It was like, all right, we sold a lot of records with Satellite Years, and we got out there, and it was pretty well-received. It's like, the world's wide open. Like, what could happen next? You know? And then we make this record, and your fan base just kind of, like, dries up on you. 
you know? Right. <laughs> it was, uh, you, you know, it was interesting because you didn't fit their mold. And then I remember that just kind of fueled us even more. It was like, yeah, of course we don't fit your mold. Like, we don't want to fit a mold. Um, right. I don't, well, and the, you and know, the, I, I mean, I remember, and this is again all like 15 years after the fact that I'm like trying to put myself back in that headspace. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting as it, as, it, as, as it changed and the goal of the band kind of changed and like our perception of the band, even from within changed, you know, from before it was like this big, exciting thing. And now it's like, Oh, well, this is how we're paying the bills. Like, right. Like we got to go out there. And then all of a sudden, like that attitude started having financial ramifications. And it's like, Oh, when I get home from this tour, I've been gone for six weeks. I only made like $700. Like I've really got to work. Like I've got to go get two jobs when I get home. And so I'd be like tiling floors during the morning and then delivering pizza at night and do this for like six weeks and try to save up enough money to be able to afford to go on tour. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know? Yeah. That yeah. was tough. Yeah. That was, those were hard times, you know? Absolutely. It's a hustle at that point. Um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, to, to, the, to your point in regards to um, you know, your own particular vision of the band, you know, at that point with A-Types and Magnetic North, there was, ov- there was a idea that you could play to an audience that has no context for punk or hardcore and just basically likes rock music, you know? Um, right. Y- you saw that trajectory and obviously, you know, sometimes there's, there's a lot of um, points in which a band tries to bridge that gap and, you know, you only get halfway there. But, you know, at the same time, you, you, you feel like you have to try it because, that's where your music vision is taking you as opposed to writing. That's where our, right, where your yeah, that's were. where our hearts were at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I think, you know, you, you, there's no way that you could probably look back if you released, you know, another two or three, uh, satellite years records, you know, you probably wouldn't be satisfied with that because it would just be, you know, living in the same, uh, continued stasis of what you guys were doing. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. Um, and that might have been more convenient at the time, but I, you know, and it just being stubborn or naive or a combination of the two, we just didn't do that. Right. You know, and just kept going down the path. And it was so funny as I, like, you know, we had this, I guess, like, impactful presence in the, in the hardcore scene. And we, so, like, or at least for me, me personally, I kind of, like, entered the hardcore scene ass backwards. Like I didn't grow up on like punk rock. Like I grew up on nineties grunge, you know? And then when nineties grunge dried up in the mid nineties, then I skipped punk rock and went straight to hardcore. Like, you know, cause I went from like helmet to snap case, which to me seems like a very natural progression. Absolutely. Um, you know, and just like bypassed all the, the, the really like punky, you know, like the no effects and, strung out and stuff like that, even though I do, I can go back and listen to it now, but that's not what drew me in initially. You know, I went straight from, you know, rage against the machine helmet, the pumpkins and sound garden and then, and hum. And then just like straight into like strong arm and Zayo and Snapcase and, and, uh, and overcome and, uh, and bands like that, you know, and it, I just totally missed the whole like punk rock thing. and, kind of didn't understand the scene that we were getting into, but it was like the most convenient way to get shows. We were like, well, we want to be a band. We know all these kids in the hardcore scene and we can play shows with their bands. 
So uh, let's try to do something kind of like that, you know, and, you know, but with our grunge rock backgrounds, you know, yeah. I can remember like one of the other bands that like we would always play shows with is Prayer for Cleansing, which right. went on to become Between the Barrier to me. Right. Um, and and uh, one of their original guitar players was like, dude, all you guys do is bar chords and octaves. Like, you're not a hardcore band. <laughs> We're like, yeah, I don't I don't really. Yeah, I, I guess. Right. You're kind of right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know. I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's what we got. Um, t- yeah, this is what we brought to the table. I don't I don't really know what else to say. We're sure. just going to play music now. <laughs> sure. Two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, you know, uh, since now you have announced that you're doing a new record, you're re- reissuing all your old stuff on vinyl. You know, there's been a uh, resurgence of interest in the, in the band. Um, yeah. I'm sure in many respects, it's just weird for you, not only to be having this conversation about something that you did 15 years ago, um, but was it, is it just weird that you feel people look at Hope's Fall as this, this, you know, influential band? Is it, uh, does it just kind of sit weird in your head or is it like, wow, I I guess I'm just appreciative of it. It's, you know, at this point in my life, what I am is grateful, um, for it, uh, a for the opportunity to get to do it again, and, and b for the the resurgence in interest. Where it's like, thank thank you for listening, thank you for giving a shit, like thank you for making all those hours, you know, that we spent doing it like worth it somehow. Like it's still on people's radar; people still care, and that's that's incredible because you know the, the band broke up, and it was you know it was kind of nasty at the end, and and we just. You know, I, I was so ready to just divorce my identity from Hope's Fall. I was like, I don't want this to be the best thing I ever did with my life. I don't want to look back the way, like, somebody looks back at their high school football career and just be like, oh, yeah, man, I was crushing it back then. I was like, all right, it's time to reinvent and move on and be done with this. Like, that was a part of your past life, and now you have a new one. And you've got to go discover that for yourself and create something different now and be somebody else. Um, you know, the way I would describe it to people, like when I got out of the band, I had a massive identity crisis. It was like, I got dishonorably discharged from the military after serving, you know, for four years or something. Uh, it was just like a whole paradigm shift. And so, and I, I tried so hard. I mean, I told my friends, like, I'll never, I'll never do this again. I'll never play music again. Like, uh, you know, I'm never going to make that a part of my life. And you know, it just kind of creeps back in. And instead of like fighting all those things that I said I would never do, just be like, you know what? The future is completely unknowable and you're just along for the ride. So why don't you just try to enjoy living through it right now and just have some fun and who cares, you know? Yeah. Like just, just go out there, have some fun, you know, try to make some good music. Uh, And, and we still all feel that way, but we're not going to, do something just for the sake of doing it. We feel like we actually have something to offer and we're excited about the music we're writing now. Um, it's interesting that it's called hopes fall. Like it still kind of makes me laugh a little bit inside. I'm like, (laughs) this is still a part of my life. Holy shit. (laughs) Right. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and last thing I wanted to mention, you know, what you do obviously outside of the band is, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're a big craft beer dude. Do you work for a beer company or you, this is just like a hobby that you have? No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a sales rep for a brewery here in Charlotte. Um, so I sell beer 
in the uptown market in Charlotte. So all the stadiums and hotels and restaurants and bars that are in the center of the city. Like that's what I've been doing for the last seven years, uh, working at this beer company. And, uh, it's really taken off and it's a, it's fun to be a part of because Charlotte was the one of the largest cities in North America without a brewery when old Mecklenburg brewery opened. That's the brewery that I work for. And also Dustin, uh, the other guitar player works there. We're both sales reps there. And then Chad, the bass player, is a bartender there. Um, <laughs> Dude, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and so, I, you know, I, it's, it's been fun because it was a small startup company. And I remember when I interviewed with the owner of the company, I was like, listen, man. And I, I referenced my band history. I was like, I'm looking for something that makes me feel a part of something bigger than myself, the way I used to feel when I was in a band. You know, I was like, no job is giving me that. But I was like, this is cool. Charlotte doesn't have this. It's changing the culture of our town. And I want to be a part of that. I grew up here. You know, I grew up complaining about this place. And now we have something cool. And maybe I can help be a part of that. And so I really poured myself into it. I mean, we went from a startup company uh, of the people that are still working at the brewery. I was the fourth employee. And now there's like 150 people. And it's become this huge part of the identity of the town. Like Charlotte is a, is a beer city. Now there's 30 craft breweries. And, uh, so it's fun, uh, for me. Cause I was like, well, yeah, I can actually say I was there at the beginning, like helping, you know, when I would go to work, you know, my, my job title was that I was a line cleaner making $10 an hour. So basically I had this like can that is pressurized and you hook it up to where the kegs hook up to and you flush the beer line out. Like, and you do this every two, three weeks just to make sure that it's clean. And so that your product is pouring fresh and good. Mm -hmm. And, but that, so that was my job title, but I'd show up to work and then the owner would be like, all right, dude, today you've got to pressure wash this deck. And he's like, Oh, do you paint? And I'm like, yeah, I can paint. And he's like, okay, I need you to paint these walls here, you know, or actually just go pick up these picnic tables from my neighbor's house. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, you know, we're, it was a small company just fumbling through and finding its way, and, and then it turned into something completely else. So, um, yeah, so that's what that's what th- three out of five of us work in the beer industry now. That's uh, that's cool. I, li- I like that because the, the parallels of growing a business are exactly the same principles as starting a band. Like, you have no idea what you're doing. You're figuring it as you go along, and then, you know, maybe you stumble yeah. to something that's cool. So, you know, I, that's why I find so many people that are involved in independent music that obviously have to, not have to, but enter the working world and are able to contribute to all of these companies and start things on their own, I believe they have such a leg up to most than uh, most other people that just enter the work world after college and have never done really anything besides, you know, just kind of hanging out and playing video games with their friends or whatever. Exactly. I can honestly say like what I, you know, I brought to the, the workforce when I, you know, was like, cause I quit the band when I was 27 and I got this job when I was 30. I basically just like bartended and worked in restaurants in between. Um, but I was like, I've been all over the world. Uh, like, you can, you, it's hard to say that I was running a business like being in Hope's Fall, but it was like, I mean, we were providing for ourselves by the things that we created, you know? And, um, so there are some parallels there. And so when it came to coming to this job, I was like, well, I'm invested in this. This is cool. I want to see it come. 
Well, I, I, I took after it with the same tenacity that I did with the band. It was like, all right, well, we have to work 65 hours this week to get this shit done. Like, it is what it is. We got to do it, you know? And, uh, you know, it was hard work. <laughs> like, you're grinding it out. And, um, but, like, knowing that the payoff could be there, that it really could grow into something cool that you can feel really proud of and, you know, you know, really kind of mold your work life together where it's like you're just living if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. That's, that's super exciting. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, man, I feel privileged to get to do this. Like I, I love my job. Yeah, that's rad. Well, so, jo- Josh, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for hanging out and uh, going down memory lane, but then also, uh, yeah, t- telling me more about yourself. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for caring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was Josh, and um, yeah, hopefully you uh, check them out. If you haven't heard Hope's Fall, like I said, I encourage you to uh, check out all of their records. Most in particular, the record that really affected me was uh, Satellite Years, and they also put out an EP called No Wings to Speak Of. That was, uh, you know, kind of kind of set the uh, the independent music hardcore scene on fire when that first came out. So uh, yeah, I encourage you to check that out. And um, you know, frankly, all their recordings have. Um, their merits and their their fun places for you to dive into but um, yeah those are the records that really spoke to me and thank you very much to josh for uh, helping us out and to natalie his publicist over at equal vision records thank you very much i always i always like to thank people that do this because you know they end up yeah they're getting some publicity out of it and yeah they're getting an audience but you know a lot of the times uh, there's a million requests from a lot of different people and so the fact that i'm able to get these things out in the world and um yeah put it out there i just i'm just thankful for people so and i'm thankful for you the listener because uh all of you are nice and thank you for continuing to pay attention to this uh this little world of uh, independent music narratives that uh, i've been able to showcase to the world in some capacity or the internet or for those of you that are listening so anyways the um guest next week is uh is a good one because uh this is a very old friend that happens to play in quite a successful band in the indie rock scene uh, his name is Val Loper. He plays in a band called Bare Hands, who are um, you know doing really, really, really well. It's one of those things where you know now they've kind of ellipsed into the uh, radio music festival scene, and you know they're getting p- chart positions in all of the radio world. And you know it, it's honestly something that I am very unfamiliar with. I've worked with a few bands that uh, you know have had some success at radio, but. Uh, where bare hands is going is um it's just unbelievable so and uh he also played in a band called in pieces which is why i know him and we played a lot of shows together in the back in the day i was about to say in the past but yeah same difference um anyways that is our discussion and that will be next week for you fine people and a bunch of other fun conversations uh, one i'm having later on this afternoon that i'm frankly a little nervous about but uh hopefully it'll go well <laughs> but anyways until next week please be safe everybody You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.